0: And our YouTube channel to chronicle our adventures. Come along with us to amazing places and learn from our mistakes and our successes.
1: We hope that you will get out there too and have a photog
0: adventure of your own. It's episode 97, and we are back today for our first ever Monday interview podcast. Yeah. And we're excited that that is beginning with. One of our heroes, photographer extraordinaire, Milky Way master guru, Wayne Pinkston, and he's on the line with us right now. Hey, Wayne. Hello, how are you doing? <laughs> hey, hey. We're doing good. We're stoked to have you on. We have talked to you. We have said your name probably 20 plus times in the time that we've done the podcast, mm, these last yeah, 96 yeah. episodes. And so I am so surprised it's taken until episode 97 to have you on. True. And it's not for lack of... It's not a thing that Wayne has done. We just haven't asked him yet. We've been so busy with our schedule. We just haven't had a chance to ask him. And so it's so exciting to have him now. Milky Way season's coming to an end. All of our love affairs with the Milky Way have that longing feeling of the summer ending. I'll see my summer love next year. And so let's think (laughs) some more. Let's let's relive some of the awesome Milky Way experiences that we've had and learn from a master Milky Way photographer like Wayne Pinkston.
2: So welcome. Thank you very much. Much I appreciate it. I'm always uh, surprised when people are interested in anything I have to say. But thank, but thank you. Absolutely,
0: nice. I mean, easy. Everyone's interested in what you have to say. Oh, yeah. All they have yeah. to do is see two of your pictures, and they already have a thousand questions for you. So right, right. No doubts there. In fact, we have a few of your pictures up that we might come back to and ask you about, particularly your predator picture. <laughs> <laughs> so we're excited to hear the story behind that. But getting going with the podcast, welcome patrons. Thank you for joining us today. So Wayne, we just heard before we started the interview that you have a schedule every year that you keep for Milky Way Photography and where you're from. So quickly, tell everyone where you're from and what your year schedule is like when you do your Milky Way Photography. Well,
2: uh, I've been retired for a couple of years. And so I have uh, free time to do this. Uh, but uh, I drive out uh, to the Southwest in April and... Uh, uh, drive my jeep out there leave the jeep uh, all spring and summer and then uh, drive back to Virginia uh, in usually September and uh, in between I will stay for the new moons uh, shoot as many new moons as i possibly can uh, then fly back to Virginia and be with the family for two weeks and then fly back out there for the next new moon it's wow. worked out it's worked out great <laughs> uh, I, I fell in love with the southwest. A long time ago, mm. and uh, um, so this is like fulfilling a dream for me. Um, it's as much fun for me to do the scouting as it is the photography. Uh, mm. But I love mm. being out there; just love being out there.
0: How many years now have you been doing this schedule where you go, you drive out, and then fly back, and come back and forth until the rest of the until the
2: end of the Milky Way season? Uh, uh, I've done that three years uh before that i would uh, a couple of years i flew out uh and rented a car Mm
0: -hmm. and
2: uh just and found out that i couldn't get to all the places i wanted to get to with the rentals Mm -hmm. and ended up getting a, a a jeep wrangler and now i'll drive that out so the i've been pretty active uh going out there and spending as much time as i can for about five years Wow,
0: man. That's nice. You were a milky Way photographer for five years. So much has changed in the last five years. What are something that you noticed that you did the first year that you now do completely different? Does anything come to mind as what's changed over that line of five years of work?
2: Uh, a, a lot has changed. Uh, originally, uh, most people were just talking about single acquisitions. Mm. Uh, and uh, now there's a lot more stacking and tracking. And uh, that kind of stuff, and or or blending, Um, but uh, that has increased dramatically, and and for the better. Um, I still like to try to uh, do everything I can with a single acquisition, Uh, if it's if it's possible. Like to squeeze as much as I can out of a single acquisition, Mm -hmm. Uh, but because you know it's fun, uh, photographically, it's fun, kind of a fun uh, experiment mentally. Uh, But stacking and tracking, all that really does help. Another thing that I think that has changed dramatically and I think will continue to change is that the sensors get better, the cameras get better, um, and the lenses are getting faster. Uh, Now you can get a 1.8 lens at 14 millimeters. Mm -hmm. You can get a 1.4 or 1.8 lens at 20 millimeters. A 1.4 lens at 24, 35, and so um, I, I think that's invaluable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. You know, the, the day may come when we, when the sensors and the lenses are so good that uh, perhaps we don't need to stack or track. Ooh. You know. I, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: They keep getting better. The idea of that—I mean—it's a good, crazy point that right yeah. now we're living in sort of a golden mm-hmm. era of so many options under 2.8. That oh, yeah. we can use yeah. and fantastic lenses at that. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone here has heard it so many times that you're probably saying in your head, that's the Rokinon, that's the Sigma, that's one that I have, that's one <laughs> that's that I have. That's what I was have. thinking. <laughs> <laughs> As he's listing off these lenses with those yeah. great apertures. So then you've been doing this for five years, not mentioning specifically any locations, Wayne. Were you coming out to Utah and New Mexico? Where are you going that you're saying I love to go to this location? This is the place I always hit every year.
2: Well, we we would go out for some vacations when the kids were younger, and like the around 2000, uh, and and you know we got to see the Southwest, and uh, but you know we just saw the national parks. Okay, yeah. and. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then uh, uh, it was a, a, a trip to the Grand Canyon. It was a National Geographic trip to the Grand Canyon. Uh, we had a National Geographic photographer on the trip, but it was not a night trip. But we were at the North Rim, and, and he said, oh, you know, it's a new moon. You know, we can go out and take some Milky Way pictures. And this is maybe 2012. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so maybe just three of us went out with him that night you know and, and the first picture popped up on the back of the camera and it was like oh my gosh <laughs> you, you, you know oh my gosh I'm in love <laughs> and um and I, since since that night that's about all I wanted to do How and we feel uh, <laughs> and so um so then I scheduled a workshop with Royce Bear, and also I uh, got a mini workshop with Dave Kingham and um and um, after that i just started trying to come out to uh, utah new mexico arizona as much as i could mm. um, i also have a, a love for the you know anasazi or ancient pueblo and ruins and i've been trying to, 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 to work on those although they're they're hard but um i would love to spend more time doing that also
0: you actually have recently tackled yeah. a challenging situation. I believe it was Mesa Verde, where you had to get a park ranger or someone to be your guide at night. You paid them to be out there, and then you were able to light paint. What was that challenge like, and where was it? Was it Mesa Verde?
2: Well, it was Chaco Canyon. Oh, Chaco, that's and, right. And um, for places like Mesa Verde or, or Chaco Canyon uh, or Navajo National uh, Park, um, those places are protected and, and rightly so. Yeah. And um, you have to get a special use permit. And uh, but the only problem is they think that you know you're doing some major documentary. And uh, oh. so, you know, but you do have to pay for the permit, and then you have to pay a, a ranger like fifty dollars an hour to go out with you. Fifty dollars so, an hour. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so Ooh. it gets expensive. Mm-hmm. And it's best to share. You know. I mean, this last <laughs> time I was I was sharing with somebody. <laughs> and uh, but they're fantastic places. Um, it's um, much, it, it's also very satisfying to go to the places that are not in national parks, like mm-hmm. uh, out in Bear's Ears, for example, mm-hmm. uh, uh, southern Utah, for mm-hmm. example. Uh, um, but those places are off the beaten track and require lots of hiking, and their work. But they're it's pretty exciting to go to them at night. Oh,
0: yeah. Mm, yeah to yeah. fill your portfolio up with the images from those locations, just such a great collector's feeling. I was like, I got a rare collection of this location mm. with the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we fill you. So, would you say you go to Nevada as well? So, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah are the places that you hang out? The
2: number one places are Utah and Arizona exactly. and New Mexico. Lots of northern part of New Mexico. Ah, yeah. uh, I, I, a little bit in Colorado, a little bit in Nevada. And kind of a moderate amount uh, along the eastern margin of California, oh, okay, right along the Sierra Nevadas, Alabama Hills, mm-hmm. the ancient bristlecone time, pine yes. forest, and so uh, I really like that part of California. Also love it. Um, I there's so much more that I'd like to see in Nevada, for example, a uh, mm-hmm. lot more in Colorado. You know, every time I scratch. A place off my, you know, to do list. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, get like five or ten more, you know? <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's gotten to be. I mean, I'll never, I'll never finish. But um, yeah, yeah. But, that, but that's the fun part.
0: Right. Right. And eventually then we can say I have to scratch off Mars and the moon, you know? Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ten years from yeah. now? Okay, wait. Sixty years from now maybe? <laughs> A Milky Way from the moon?
2: Oh, wow. That makes, that makes that's me good. wish I was 50 years younger. <laughs> and and uh, it might be possible for the guys that are 20 now.
0: Hey, there'll be an advancement Mm. in some sort of medical benefit. We live to 200. You'll be there with us. You'll be (laughs) leading a workshop to Mars. I can't wait to come and join you. So (laughs) photographically speaking, Wayne Pinkston has an amazing photography for Milky Way that takes advantage of low-level lighting, natural lighting, long exposures to make the landscape quite a feature. Mm -hmm. He he keeps the landscape photographer in his shots of the Milky Way. Wayne, can you explain to us what is your process to do that? What are some of the techniques you use to make those beautiful nightscapes? Let me just—I'll
2: back up just a little bit. You know, the, I told you the first time we went out, and that picture of the Milky Way pops up, and mm-hmm. I and, and I absolutely <laughs> love that. Yeah. And then then you want to find something interesting in the foreground for your Milky Way.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, but but for me, the uh, after a while, the the foregrounds became the primary thing. And the Milky Way was like the icing on the cake, oh. and, and uh, so so I, I kind of decided that um, I wanted to be a landscape photographer at night, uh, and yeah. maybe that maybe that'll surprise people. But that is I kind of feel like more I'm I'm a night landscape photographer mm-hmm. than an astrophotographer, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so there are a number of ways to do that. But but I want to see all the different levels. Uh, in the in the foreground, meaning I, I don't want to black out the distant stuff. You know, right. I don't want to black I don't want to black out the deep shadows. Uh, basically, I want to get shadow details at, at night, just like you do during the daytime. Wow, mm-hmm. that's ambitious. So it's resulted in me shooting different than a lot of people do. Uh, I shoot at high ISO. And I use a lot less light, uh, low-level lighting, than most people. Ooh, and, and if you kind of do a, a mental experiment, um, you know, if you're out there and you turn on your lighting, your low-level lighting, and you turn it up higher, then you turn your exposure down. Okay, mm-hmm. so you don't overexpose. Right. And when you turn your exposure down, uh, you all that stuff in the background gets blacked out. It gets dark. you you know so you turn your lighting down i mean so so you can barely see it and you have to turn your exposure up and then if you do that then starlight kind of becomes your fill light and you can see all that distant uh background so so my my what i'm trying to do whether Mm. successful or not is trying to see all the different levels in the foreground, from the near to the distant foreground, and maybe get them different layers of darkness, uh, but not really blacking everything out. And um, so I turned the low of lighting down pretty low, and I shoot at high ISO. Now, people keep asking me how I do my pictures, and then I tell them how I do it, and I shoot at high ISO, and they tell me everything I'm doing wrong. Usually, <laughs> the, and, and, and usually that, leads to a crisis of of confidence and i go read on the internet and i read all the stuff and it tells me that i'm doing everything wrong and then i go i go try it i go try it and i shoot at iso 3200 and i just cannot make the pictures look like i want them to look yeah. at iso 3200 no, when yeah. the dark part of the foreground is so dark that when I lighten it up, it's horribly noisy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And actually, in those dark portions of the foreground, I actually end up getting less noise when I shoot at high ISO, and I and I move the left side of the histogram away from the left side of the graph, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I shoot at a pretty high ISO, and that means that then you have to spend a lot of time really trying to manage noise, and trying to get as good as you can at managing noise. And right. so, I mean, I've spent a lot of time on the computer trying to figure out the best way to minimize noise. And um,
0: I got to ask I mean, are you willing to give us some tips on what you do? Because I know that I like a higher ISO, and I wasn't doing it necessarily for the landscape, I was doing it for, I love seeing billions of stars i love mm. that and so i, I bring comfort, mine up yeah. and get my exposure as perfect as i can for the milky way and then you know i have some noise but i just don't care about it enough but people are always concerned about seeing noise in their image so do you have one or two tips that you don't mind sharing with the audience of how they can work with their noise especially in foreground blacks because that ends well, up being purplish and weird mm, sensor color mm. noise how do you deal well, with that
2: Th- that's the very thing that you can minimize by th- those weird colors, the, yes. the color shift, the color shift in the dark areas. You can minimize that by getting the, uh, by moving your histogram curve off the left edge of the graph, uh, you know, moving it away from the left edge of the graph. Mm. And frequently I will shoot at uh, 10,000 or 12,800, I said 10,000 or 12,800. 10, 12, mm-hmm. Now, you do end up getting more noise overall. But but here here are my thoughts, and you know people always tell me I'm wrong but uh, <laughs> if, you, if I separate the sky and and the foreground into different selections or, or mass one or the other and work on them one at a time mm-hmm. okay. okay so if if, if, uh, if you think about it, uh, the sky is doesn't start off as very high contrast, but it's going to end up high contrast yeah by the time you finish with it. Now sharpness sharpness is a function of contrast and resolution, and and we're going to have a whole lot of contrast in the sky, so you can you can do a lot of noise reduction, and not mess up your sky. You can do a lot of noise reduction in the sky, and later do some you know some careful sharpening, and your and your your sky is still going to look really good.
1: Mm, okay, uh,
2: be- because you've got one of the major components of sharpness already you're gonna end up with, with a lot of contrast in the sky and you can use that to increase the perception of sharpness. Now in the foreground, you have almost no contrast at all. You know, you have very dismal contrast, mm-hmm. uh, very small dynamic range in, in right. the foreground. So I process that separately and many times uh, I do some extra noise reduction uh, in, the, uh, in, in the foreground. Now, um, another thing that I do that helps a lot is that, well, I don't do any sort of sharpening, even in Lightroom. I don't do any sharpening until the very end of processing. Mm-hmm. You know, Lightroom comes with a default of like, you know, 25, 25 or yeah, 40. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I either turn the masking all the way up to 100% or, or turn the, the sharpening down and don't do any sharpening until the end. And then I've tried lots of different methods for sharpening because – sharpening has a tendency to make the noise look worse anyway. Yes, yeah, right. So, and, and so, so what I personally do is I use a type of sharpening uh, in Photoshop. I, I, I start in, in Lightroom and then I export to Photoshop, separate it into layers, and then color correct in both the sky and, and mm, the foreground wow. separately. And then at the very end, uh, I've gotten away from any sort of classic sharpening. Uh, because classic sharpening or high-pass sharpening or illuminate sharpening all uh, increase the appearance of, of noise. I would think so, so yeah. So, so so I use a, a, a type of sharpening that's much more like the clarity function in Lightroom, but I do mm-hmm. it in Photoshop at the very end. Interesting. I've only seen this in print a couple of times, so somebody's probably going to tell me I'm wrong. But, <laughs> Don't but, even <laughs> worry about that. <laughs> but in Lightroom, at the very end, after I've done everything, I usually sharpen the sky and the foreground, but I, I will use Unsharp Mask or or Smart Sharpen. Either one doesn't matter. And for the amount, instead of a high amount, you use a low amount, like ten to twenty. And the in the radius, you put up forty to sixty. Okay, oh. it's completely the opposite of the normal uh, sharpening you do. Mm-hmm. But 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 I have read that's basically what the Clarity function in Lightroom does. Oh, it uses no. a low amount and a high radius, radius yeah. and so what it does is it's increasing local contrast. And how local it is, you can uh, you can uh, change with your your uh, radius.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. I would usually use an amount of about twenty and a radius of about fifty, and it increases what they call local contrast, and it increases the perception of sharpness, and it really doesn't do much of anything at all to the noise. Because the noise are all those little one pixel things, you, right, you know, right. those little tiny things. So when you have your radius uh, for your sharpening, when you have that radius down to the size of a pixel, uh, you know, like 1.0, then it's going to sharpen the noise. Mm-hmm. So you get that higher radius and, and, and uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't accentuate the noise nearly as much. So, I think that you can get away with a lot of sharpening in the sky, doing, I mean, a lot of noise reduction and then a lot of sharpening, the way I just described, in the sky. Mm -hmm. And in the foreground, I do some extra uh, noise reduction, and then I sharpen it with that clarity-like function. And some people may find, you know, that my images are soft, uh, but, you know, I don't see anything out there at night that looks... All that sharp. Exactly. Yeah. River sharpness I think can be can look weird at night. So anyway, mm, they're yeah. they're just these are all personal opinions, but that's kinda how my thinking goes. Yeah, nice. and I
0: think that's really awesome. Of course, people who do a blend of a blue hour go really crazy sharp on their foreground, mm-hmm. but they're blending different times. Mm-hmm. At night, it's going to be soft, absolutely, and I say it's going to be yep. noisy, but your method is an interesting one that I'm looking forward to ta- to trying in my own. Let me summarize, mm-hmm. guys, for you basically his process, if I can say it this way simply, Wayne, that... You capture for the landscape first, with an accent of the Milky Way. You are making sure that you are keeping even your distant horizons, some of those visible, by having an exposure that you bring off the left, so that it's not too noisy. You've really exposed to the right as much. How how much would you say you go? Do you cross the middle I, a lot with uh-huh. your exposed to the right?
2: I. Uh, uh. I think I always go by the histograms. Uh, You can't really believe anything you're seeing on the back of your camera. Mm -hmm. Right. Because you can can turn the brightness up and down. So I always look at the histogram. And the right shoulder of the histogram, I try to get somewhere around the middle, uh, you know, the middle of the graft. You know, maybe, you know, it could be a little on one side or the other. But somewhere, try to get the right shoulder or somewhere in the middle of the graft. And the left shoulder, I try to get off. The left side of the graft, meaning there's a little bit of uh, a little bit of space there between the left shoulder of the histogram and the left margin of the graft. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so you're not any, any true blacks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You can make them black later, mm-hmm. right? If you need <laughs> to, exactly. Absolutely. exactly, And so exactly. You, you capture mm. it that
0: way so that you can use these methods that are going to soften and clean up noise and sharpen and take care of your landscape separately than your sky. Are On almost all of your images, do you have a masked out, sky and ground with your Photoshop layering that you do and treat differently or do you just local brush edit things Uh,
2: I separate it into two, the sky and the foreground into two separate layers and then I will treat them uh, overall uh, for you know brightness and contrast but then I work on separate areas like you know many times your your low level lighting may not be uniform for example and Mm, I mean you know you know that the side closest to the lights is going to have is going to be brighter yeah. you know i will i will even out the illumination for example and and i do lots of little local corrections but before i do any of that i separate the sky from the foreground
0: well, that is an awesome technique that yeah. that takes a lot of extra effort to make sure mm-hmm. you get right. I mean, don't kid me. If you want to do photography like Wayne Pinkston, you will be in Photoshop. Would you say that you're <laughs> in there
2: for a few hours? It depends on how complicated the, the, the image is, mm-hmm. but uh, I usually spend an hour or two on an image.
0: Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, that's still not as bad as it can be. There, there
2: are, or, of course, some where the sky is really complicated you know, and, and then the foreground's really complicated and there are a bunch of bright rocks that you want to tone down or something like that. There's certain ones that, you know, you may spend hours on because you just don't want to give up on them. They're, you know, the scene's too good. <laughs> yeah. In general, uh, one to two hours. And, and there's something else I always tell people that I'm shooting with. The foreground is less forgiving than the sky. The sky's pretty forgiving, but the foreground is... You have to get right in the field, okay. Mm -hmm. If you mess up the foreground in the field, like you know, you totally underexpose it, you're not going to be able to uh, bring out the shadow areas, the dark areas.
1: True, true.
2: I I will fiddle around uh, and try to get the lights just right. For example, I'll go back and forth to the lights, turning them up and turning them down, and moving them around until until I can get the foreground as good as I can and. And if you do, it cuts down the processing time a lot. I have had that
0: experience in Goblin Valley where I severely underexposed my foreground, but in location with the brightness of my LCD screen and just my own eyes, I thought I was doing fine. I thought I had a subtle lighting. It turned mm. out when I got back to my computer that it was underexposed severely and looked yeah. terrible. And like you said, oh. you just can't recover it. It's it's mm. over. You try yeah. and bring it up, and it just looks way worse than it would have if you just had a little extra stop of light or two that would have fixed it with low level lighting going up or my exposure going up. That's where I needed to fix it. So you're absolutely right, Wayne. So I want to ask a question specifically about this alien throne panorama and ask some of those (laughs) questions about your lighting techniques as as well as what you've already talked about. But let's go ahead and take our first break of the podcast and we'll come right back with Wayne Pinkston. All right, cool. Welcome back to the Photog Adventures podcast. We're hanging out with the master Milky Way guru, Wayne Pinkston, and his masterfulness comes from amazing landscapes. And we've learned a little bit more about Wayne and how Actually, his priority are the landscapes mm-hmm. with a little bit of accent of the Milky Way. And I think that's why he's had this great portfolio of photography that shows off the landscapes well. Mm-hmm. We have one up right now that is from his, port- his website, waynepingstonphoto.com. If you go there and click on his 2018 new editions, you'll see the what's new section and you go down to a panorama called Alien Throne Panorama It's out in Valley of Dreams in New Mexico Badlands. And just looking at this picture, Wayne, I have a couple questions. Right off the bat, I can see exactly what you're saying with the stuff in the background that would typically be clipped black and you wouldn't see anything but a silhouette. I can see how you brought those shadows up and you've exposed it long enough high enough iso whatever it took to bring out that Mm -hmm. detail on the distant rocks on the horizon versus what you've actually light painted in the foreground i can see exactly what you're doing here
2: well you know if if you well i shoot at high iso and, and at high iso uh you can use starlight as your fill light so, so if you kind of pretend like you're in a big outdoor studio, your your uh, the light that you bring, the low-level lighting, is the accent light, and mm-hmm. the fill light in the background is starlight. But but you have to expose adequately to do that. Okay. But if you do, uh, you can see those different layers and see some of that uh, distant uh, see some of those distant rock formations.
0: So with this scene talking about low-level lighting now, what? kind of lights did you have? We have an obvious rim light on the inside of the throne where you underlit mm-hmm. the rock, but are there mm-hmm. two, three other lights in this scene or just one
2: more? How many uh, lights do
0: you think you used?
2: There is just one. This is a pretty complicated area because <laughs> uh, you, can't, you cannot back off too far because there are these giant hoodoos uh, behind you and off, <laughs> off to the left. So, so if, you, if you know the area, if you... Uh, when I
0: say we've you, been there, it's metaphorically. We've been there with yeah, places we, <laughs> that have confined us and constricted us to yeah. a little area with oh, our lighting, okay. and we can't move okay. away without co- causing more problems. So I can mm-hmm. see how this probably is exactly like that. So with one light, yeah. it's behind there, the big tall throne?
2: Yeah, there, there's uh, one light behind. There's a small gold Zero micro lantern. They're oh, very that. small. Really? And, uh, they're very, they're, they're really very small. And uh, sometimes you well, they will turn down very low. The light is kind of on the warm, slightly warm, Mm -hmm. which is nice. Yeah. And um, uh, I believe this one actually has a handkerchief on top of it. So I take the. What's really what's really nice is you can carry two or three of these in your pocket, and they're so small you don't even know it. Yeah, that's nice. um, So there's a little gold zero micro with a a handkerchief over top, and then uh, the out in front there are two giant hoodoos directly behind us, and there's just not, they're hard to work around. So between these giant hoodoos, there's a 10-foot light stand um, that has a light panel. And I use a light panel nowadays, I've kind of migrated to a light panel that uh, where you have variable intensity and variable color temperature. Mm. Oh, really? And there's one made by Ceneroid, C-E-N-E-R-O-I-D, uh, that has like 96 little LEDs and you can turn the color temperature from 2,700 up to maybe 6,500.
1: Oh, and, nice. And, the temperature.
2: and, and so uh, I've, I've gotten to the point where I'm starting to use a much more neutral light temperature, usually 4,000K or 4,200K. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's not completely neutral, but more neutral. Yeah. It's not real warm. And um, that way, if you're kind of neutral... Um You can change the color a little easier in post-processing, mm-hmm. tone it down. Mm-hmm. If it's not too yellow or too blue, it's easy to make it the way you this want. One, it's easy yeah, to tweak yeah, it. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's why I buy the Z96 where I have the FNV light that has that high CRI LED bulbs that don't give off too much of a color cast, mm-hmm. if at all. So you're yeah. saying... The Centeroid. I was gonna ask you that. I'm really glad you brought it up. Yeah, and yeah. it has the capability of dimming as well as changing from about two thousand something Kelvin up to about sixty five hundred Kelvin. Right. Is it uh, adjustable all throughout that range? And you can even hit four thousand, yeah. four thousand two hundred
2: your call. Yes. Mm. Yes. There uh there are two versions. Uh there's a uh, well, w- one other reason I like that light is because most of the ones that have variable color temperature uh, are just too, too bright. Now, this one's smaller, has 96 LEDs, okay. and you, you can co- c- control the color temperature uh, and the intensity independently. This will turn down to 1% intensity. Ooh. And uh, there are two versions there's a digital version. And there's a analog version. The analog version's like ninety-nine dollars and the digital is like $199. Oh, okay. And and you can continually, continuously change the color temperature throughout that range. So you can kinda if you have time, you can kind of match the color temperature to your to your foreground colors.
0: Ooh. Yeah. And, I can
2: see and, Brendan and, uh, loving that. Um, and you know it's only it's not it's only a few dollars more than the Z ninety six. Right, the, the right. analog right. version, and um, I love them. They're small, easy to carry around. There, there are other, there are other ones, uh, but this was the one that has been the most uh, economical, uh, price-wise. Mm. So then,
0: this is this, in this scene, you have one of those plus the little lantern, the Gold Zero mm-hmm. lantern, and mm-hmm. so right. in total, your lighting is. One centeroid and one goal zero lantern, yeah, and then yes. the rest is star fill light. Yes. Is there light pollution in this area off to the left? Like those clouds are glowing a little yellow. Is there light uh, pollution close enough adding to it, or do you think it's all natural starlight?
2: There is some light pollution, but this is an awfully dark area. It's wonder- wonderfully dark. Okay. Uh, but on this night, uh, there is uh, the town of Farmington that's about 60 miles away. Mm. and And uh, there were clouds and and the light pollution was lighting up the clouds. You mm-hmm. know the clouds just happened to be sitting over top of the town, you know, and so you got that yellow glow. Yeah. Uh, it would be nice if that wasn't there. But just the way it was. But it's a wonderfully dark place generally. And, and usually there's not much light pollution.
0: Wow. In this scene, you have so many structures popping over your horizon into your sky. And you most certainly separated the sky from the foreground in this processing yeah, method? Yeah, Yes. Okay. Yes. That's some really good work. Do you have any tips for anybody on working with the halo issues that they'll get around their borders between the two masks?
2: The quality of your selections to start with means less of a halo. Mm -hmm. If you're not perfectly focused, you get more of a halo and if you don't get a good selection you get more of a halo. Uh, I've started to separate my images into the sky and foreground layers. I've started using the select and mask uh, function in Photoshop. Um, If you go to the select menu about maybe three years ago uh, a new choice popped up in the select menu. It's called select and mask. Uh-huh, yes. And uh, if you go and select and mask, uh, it will do most of the work for you. Then you have to fine-tune it. Um, but you kind of swipe over the sky, and it will choose the sky. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you can kind of fine-tune the edges with like a paint tool or a lasso tool. And then you hit save, and then it will save... Uh, you hit save uh, into uh, uh, selection with a new mask layer.
0: Gotcha. And
2: and, uh, you'll have two layers. Now I experimented a lot and with rocks I can get a pretty sharp edge if I if I use just a in that function if I use a feather of zero and a a contrast of uh, like a 10 and a softness of like 10 and you know you have to It'll make a pretty crisp uh, interface, hmm. uh, but um, but sometimes you still get fuzzy ones, and yeah. if I if I do, then I go back and uh, at the very end I'll try to clean up the fuzziness with a clone tool. Hmm.
0: Well, that's some really good specific tips for those of you out yeah, there who've seriously. been trying to get good at that. I know that I'm actually going to put that into practice and I hope that you guys will too and see, okay, yeah, I can see how that works easier with it. Cause I've had some successes and some just frustrating loves <laughs> with it. And I think a lot of it, like he says, has to do with your focus. Cause I'll have oh, yeah. rocks yeah. that have just an indiscriminate, indistinguishable border because of a soft edge and yeah. then what do you do i mean it's really really challenging to mask it out without it looking like you've cut some of it out or you're adding keep keeping some of it in on the sky so yeah very mm-hmm. good challenge if
2: it's hard to get it in focus you know the, the 14 millimeter lenses have a wonderful depth of field but if you're still having trouble getting stuff in focus and if it's if you're just too close I just do a, a, a focus on the foreground and a focus on the stars. Mm-hmm. And uh, it doesn't change my workflow. I just use the That's sky true. from one picture and the foreground from the other. It doesn't change my workflow hardly at all. And
0: you're already separating everything, so right. why not? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, you bring Make it up. Tip. Can I ask, uh, what do you think the lens and camera is that you use for this particular shot?
2: Uh I used a Nikon 810A, mm. and uh, and I'm pretty sure this was the Nikon 14 to 24. And uh, we did this on a workshop, and uh, when I'm doing workshops, I just put the 14 to 24 on there and don't take it off because it takes too long to change lenses. Mm. So <laughs> it just it just stays on there the whole time. So I'm pretty sure this was the Nikon. I, I love the lens anyway, but the Nikon 14 to 24, probably on 24 millimeters vertically, okay. on the Nikon 810A, and I absolutely love that camera. I just I love it. The color I get with that camera—it's
0: yeah, been modified for astrophotography. That's why it has the A on it, mm. so it really brings out some great colors in your Milky Way.
2: Mm. It it does. I got an 850 as my second camera i had another nikon before that but i got an 850 as my second camera And I don't think the colors in the Milky Way were quite
0: as good. Gotcha. With the Milky Way colors, you have certain reds that aren't showing up depending on how your camera has an IR filter. What is the 810A doing? Is it taking away some of the filters that are blocking infrared or are they bringing up an H-alpha? Is that the same thing, what I'm saying? What are some of the differences in the 810A? Well,
2: it. Uh, I think that wh- what you're saying is the same thing. Uh, I, it takes away the uh, red infrared uh, filter, okay. uh, so some of those reds are filtered out. Filtered out in a regular camera, and they're not. Now, what that means is that you may get some hazy red colors in the daytime if you um, use this camera, oh, but oh. but they're really relatively inapparent. Really, I haven't had a problem using it during the daytime, but. Uh, There are certain things uh, where you may see a little bit of redness to a a halo or something like that. But at nighttime, it brings out the red and the nebulae in the sky, and it's really pretty dramatic. It's it's very effective at, at showing the reds that get filtered out by a regular camera. Yeah, well, you can
1: definitely see in the pictures, yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly, and
2: it, it gets really me excited
0: shows. about doing that. When you look at AirGlow between those two cameras, have you noticed any difference? Does the 810A capture AirGlow any differently than your 850? Um,
2: yeah, and this is where it gets weird, and I don't really understand it at all. <laughs> no. But before I went to Nikon, I used Canon for a long time and, and loved the cameras. I just basically switched to... Nikon years ago, so I could, uh, a few years ago, so I could use the 14 to 24 millimeter lens. I oh, really wanted to you use that. did oh. it for that lens. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: uh, so, but I used Canon uh, before that. And, and with Canon and with the 850, the light pollution is more orange with mm-hmm. Canon and my 850. And oh. with my 810A, the light pollution is much more yellow
0: Oh. And,
2: you know, that I'm not sure that makes any sense at all. You'd think it'd be more red or something.
0: Possibly. But yeah. it's
2: more yellow. It's not as warm. And I usually have to make my light pollution a little more red to make it look like other cameras.
0: Oh, hmm. really? Interesting. You end up processing some light pollution color back
2: in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, which is kind of a weird thing to do. It but, is. Uh, <laughs> uh, I like the I like the Canon light pollution better than my 810a light pollution.
0: Well, that is a photog adventures first. Hearing anybody <laughs> utter the phrase. I like the Canon's light pollution better. That is interesting. I never even consider it being different by body. I, now I'm going to have to ask our Sony users if they notice anything just because of the sensor difference. So then the last question I have on this picture, if you don't have any questions, Brendan, mm-hmm. is that you see much detail in your dust lanes. Are you stacking this one? It is a panorama, so it's by virtue of that a higher res. Did you track? Are you? What are you doing in this picture particularly?
2: <laughs> this is another a place uh, where I, I separate things. Um, I separate out uh, the Milky Way from the rest of the sky, which is a selection. Mm-hmm. Okay, I use the lasso and separate out the Milky Way. Really, and and feather it like maybe 250 or something like that. Okay. And, and then I then I can add a little more contrast to, to the to the Milky Way as compared to the rest of the sky. I don't like to black out the rest of the sky. I don't want to black out. The dark areas, yeah. Uh, But I, it does uh, by separating out zones in the sky, like the Milky Way. uh, I can adjust the contrast specifically in that area to what I want. So basically, Mm -hmm. I'm just I'm just subdividing the sky into smaller pieces, uh, so I can control the contrast independently, like in the Milky Way or the Milky Way core. Uh,
0: course mm. I mean I've done it too where I brought up the contrast to make the dust lanes look cool but you're right the rest of the sky goes dark and you start mm. losing some stars and it also just looks crunchy yeah but bringing yeah. that out with the lasso uh, tool at 250 feather that's a very great tip
2: that is yeah <laughs> and then at the very end I take a large dodge brush like really large like <laughs> 2 to 3000 pixels
1: I put it on a
2: feather of zero, and I put it on an exposure of like five, so you're doing very little, and I put it on highlights, and then I run it over the Milky Way, and it just it puts a little halo, I run it around the periphery of the Milky Way, and it puts a halo around the Milky Way, brightens up, it brightens up the Milky Way. So, very a huge dodge brush, feather of zero, exposure of maybe five, and lighten up the highlights, and it gives it a little bit of punch.
0: And you change the setting specifically to only affect highlights. Mm-hmm. Are you doing mm-hmm. that in Photoshop only, or have you ever tried to do that with Lightroom? I haven't.
2: Uh, I do that at the very end, mm-hmm. so so in Photoshop. Okay. So yeah. I, I I do stuff as much as I can in Lightroom, and then I ship it over to Photoshop to separate it out into layers, and and then everything else is in Photoshop. Wow.
0: That is an easy-mode way of doing the dodging and burning of your Milky Way core, mm-hmm. and that really brings things out. And it sounds like you only do it for the highlights. You don't actually do an opposite version for the dust lanes?
2: Actually, no. Sometimes I will dodge the dark areas if the dust lanes are getting too dark. We, we mentioned increasing the contrast separately mm-hmm. in the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If the, if the dust lanes are starting to get too dark, I'll do, I'll, I will dodge the shadows To keep them from getting too carried away, to bring it back to normal. But but after I've got the overall brightness of the Milky Way, kind of what I want then I'll use that. I'll, I'll use the dodge brush on the highlights and it just gives it a little more punch. Well, very cool.
0: These have been some fantastic, very <laughs> specific, awesome tips. I mean, if you guys are taking yeah. this home, you could literally treat it like a course tutorial. Almost, yeah. It's you really good. follow along. Okay, Wayne has his idea of this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to try it. I, I can't wait to try it on my own stuff, Wayne. I really like the look of your photography and yeah. I love your landscapes and I'm surprised to hear... Um, am I am I right in assuming now that you haven't stacked or tracked?
2: Oh, sometimes I stack, but not not in this image. The, the really nice thing about learning how to optimize your single exposures is that you can use that on panoramas you can do Mm -hmm. you know single shot you know single exposure panoramas you can do it with people in the pictures you know because you know people can't stand there you know for for (laughs) you know panorama for example but but you know single acquisitions work better with with people use hard to stack a you know image with person unless you put the people in later yeah so so there are lots of places where it helps to optimize your single exposure but I, I do I do long exposure foreground sometimes uh, and um, and sometimes I do stacking if if I do stacking I, I do exactly the same uh, factors that I would use for a single exposure because you still want to get still want to be able to see those shadow areas
1: yeah yeah. so
2: if I do a long exposure foreground say I take the sky at 12,800 2.8 and 20 seconds mm-hmm. okay okay then I, I would probably do the foreground at 1600, 2.8 in five minutes. Five oh, minutes even.
1: Really soak it in. Mm.
2: And you use long exposure noise reduction. And uh, so mm. it's usually my last shot before I leave, you know, because it takes 10 minutes to capture it.
0: Are you All doing right. noise reduction afterwards when you do that five minute one?
2: Yeah. Mm. Yes, yeah, so I, I, I take the, um, I get everything set up, I take the sky. And as my last shot uh, in that composition, I'll, I'll take the the five minute uh, foreground. But still, the same principles apply. You know, you want the histogram. You want to move the histogram off the left margin of the mm-hmm. graph.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, sweet. Well, we have already taken an hour of your time, Wayne, but we still want to ask a couple cool stories. So if you don't mind hanging around with us after the break, let's take a quick break, come back, (laughs) and let's hear some stories from Wayne Pinkston when he's out there doing cameras because we've had some amazing (laughs) guru information. But now let's just hang out and hear some funny stories. Cool.
1: Hey, guys, welcome back to the Photog Adventures podcast. And we're here with Wayne Pinkston, and we're going to talk to him about the one of his pictures in his gallery has a, a big predator. Um, I don't know if it's a if it's a guy in a costume or if it's like a life size doll kind of thing. Like, you need to tell us a little bit more
0: about that.
2: What is going on? Well, my my wife calls that my temporary insanity, <laughs> and uh, and I have to admit I went a little crazy on that one. Uh, uh, we had a sickness in the family, and so we spent a lot of time indoors last winter. Mm-hmm. And I got this idea in my mind of doing uh, night uh, uh, night photos with characters in them, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, Milky Way photos with, with like, adventure-type things, yeah, uh, characters. Yeah. Huh? So I started I started making this Predator costume. Oh, you made and, it. Uh, I, 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 first, I got a, a high-altitude uh, jumpsuit from China uh-huh. for like a, you know and then, oh, then really? I painted that kind of light green like the predator and <laughs> I got a, a suit of armor uh, that is uh, the leather breastplate is armor wow. and I painted that like the predator and this took weeks and then, <laughs> then, I, uh, then I got leather, leather armor for the shoulders and the thighs and the legs and painted that silver Anyway, my wife thought I was like totally crazy. I ended up, I ended up spending a lot of money, That's and then I, awesome then, I bought, then I bought this mask. And, oh, I found this uh, this FX uh, this FX company, and that makes these latex masks that are oh, really really gosh. cool. Yeah. And so and so um, the only problem is the thing weighs like about forty pounds. Oh really? <laughs> so you, need, you need about you need about three or four people to carry it. Oh my gosh! But it was fun. Three or four it people. It was fun, and I love the experience. Now I just have to find more places to use it.
0: <laughs> will you please yeah. bring it to the Nightscaper conference?
2: I could, cause it's actually in it's actually in Moab right now, in storage. <gasps> hey, yeah. yes, that okay. would be awesome. Okay. We, we will could. do an
0: entire YouTube video with you about that, and wearing it, and going around uh, town, and showing up in <laughs> Milky Way shots everywhere uh, we, we can. can.
2: We can we can take a shot with it with it on. It's. Um, it's pretty fun. That would be I'll, awesome. I'll,
0: I'll even hike up the delicate arch with you with it and just <laughs> getting people's shots.
2: <laughs> I, uh, I, I really kind of reverted to my my childhood when I did that, but boy, it was oh, a lot yeah. of fun. Well, that's oh, yeah. why
0: we're so drawn to playing with it with you.
2: Oh my gosh,
0: that's amazing! <laughs> so then, are you the one in the costume for this picture?
2: Uh, on my website, I am. But this is a guy a work a guy in the workshop. We did a, a, a costumes workshop, okay. and it's one of the one of the people that uh, just really wanted to wear that costume. <laughs> and 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 I was thankful because that way I could help the other people. Yeah, yeah. But it was it was a blast. It uh, was a blast.
0: Oh my god. Okay. So, it's in storage in Moab. Fantastic. I can't wait to <laughs> hang out with you and do that. I hope we even I hope you don't get too busy with tons of fans and too busy talking to people so that we can't find an hour or two to go and get this and do it
2: there you know, there, there are some now that I think about it. There's some places in Arches the only the problem with arches during that conference is there are going to be lots of people out yeah, there. Yeah, we're not going to go there but, for our workshops. There are places close to the road which would work for that costume, you know? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Like that one arch on the
2: side of the road. But anyway, wanna... tra- track me down and cool. we'll, uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll get out the costume. Absolutely.
0: Awesome. Well, Wayne, it has been a tremendous honor having you on with us on the podcast. We have to have you back if you allow us. We'd love to have you back soon. Oh, yeah. If not before the end of the year, it'll definitely be before the beginning of next year's summer. You know Milky Way season before you go take off in April and get out here to the <laughs> south southwest. Uh, we are going to have you on. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah.
2: Oh, I, the honor is mine. I, like I said before, I'm still surprised when anybody wants to hear anything I have to say. <laughs> so it's kind of so it's kind of cool when no, anybody it's will been listen.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Uh, everyone will listen, and everybody knows that when I mentioned you in the podcast, they've looked forward. When are you mm. going to have Wayne Pinkston on? So. Mm-hmm. You don't even understand the influence that you have, Wayne. Well, yeah. th-
2: thank you very much.
0: Wayne, people who want to follow you, how can they find your information, what website, and if they get interested in joining you for a workshop, where can they find information for that?
2: If they just go to Waynepingstonphoto.com, uh, that, that'll do it. Okay. com, and I'm also on Flickr and, um, and uh, uh, Instagram. On Instagram, I'm there as Wayne Pinkston.
0: You're presenting at the Nightscaper Conference. Are you doing workshops and field trips so people can consider joining you on one of those? Yes, I'm I'm
2: talking uh, at the Nightscaper Workshop and our conference. And basically, it's going to be on the landscape. And I call it... uh, Uh, putting the landscape back in landscape astrophotography. Mm. So it's kind Mm -hmm. of the same stuff we just talked about. Awesome. Okay, We're
0: excited to meet you at the Nightscaper Conference and if you guys join us out at the Nightscaper Conference, you can hear Wayne Pinkston teach how to do landscapes, bringing landscapes back into night night Milky Way landscape photography. So it's
1: going to be fantastic.
0: Thank you, Wayne. Hope you have a great day. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. If you enjoy this content and you are already a patron, thank you so much for following us and being a patron and supporting photog adventures hope you guys will keep it going tell your friends if you have any questions let us know And any requests hit us up at yeah aaron or brendan at photalkadventures.com. yeah
1: thanks for joining us wayne thank you very much have a good okay. one see you you
0: too